Heavenly Father, we gather here this morning humbly before you, recognizing that we are entering into the presence of a thrice holy God. And even as we begin to enter into this rather challenging book in the New Testament, we are rightly encouraged knowing that you will, by your Holy Spirit, enable us to understand this word and to be rightly blessed by it. I ask, Lord, that you would do that for my brothers and sisters today and for the next several weeks to come, that you would enable us to not only hear but to keep and to do that which you revealed to John so long ago. Father, we recognize that these days are evil. Certainly these past few years have revealed to us and to the world that we are in the last days. It is our desire, Father, as followers of Christ to be faithful. We want to be steadfast in our love for you, in our proclamation of the gospel, in our living holy lives. I ask, Lord, that you would use this incredible book to that end. That each of us would rightly be challenged in what we hear over the next several weeks. That we'd be rightly convicted over the sin that remains in our lives. That we'd be rightly encouraged by the power of the Holy Spirit growing us in faith. Father, we want to truly believe that Jesus is coming soon and in light of that truth persevere to the end Lord I do I do pray for a special blessing upon the teaching and preaching of this book over the next several weeks that you would grant me patience and wisdom as I attempt to engage in a most, most difficult genre I pray as well for patience and wisdom for my brothers and sisters as they hear your word, understand it, and by your grace obey it. We are thankful for this opportunity and certainly realize in light of our time, Father, how important this teaching will be for us. I ask, Lord, for those of us who are slumbering that you'd awaken us for those of us who are filled with anxiety, that you would calm us. For those of us struggling to persevere, that you would strengthen us. We ask for these things, Father, that we might be the most glorious testimony possible to you. We ask it ultimately for your glory, that you would through our lives and this church be honored. In Christ's name, amen. The book of Revelation, the last book in your canon, if you have trouble finding it, we're probably in trouble. Just go to the very back and it'll be there. Um, If it's not, then we'll get you another Bible. The title of the sermon is here and keep these words. I took the first eight verses and was tempted to do way more than I should, so I'm going to try to keep this as consolidated as possible. It is an introduction. It is John's prologue to the book. 
and hopefully will set a stage for us moving forward over the next several weeks. I would argue that the monotony and routine of everyday life has a tendency to numb our senses. My son, who just went back to school last week, he was home for the summer, and after his first full month of construction with my brother, his uncle, he would get up early in the morning, and I'd be down there, and he looked at me, and he said, this is unbelievable. And I said, what? He goes, it's the same thing every single day. And I laughed, and I said, welcome to life. Monotony numbs us. I think that's one of the reasons we're so moved by good movies and by good books. They have a tendency to break through the monotony and put us back in touch with what is real. Life and death, joy and sorrow, heaven and hell, judgment and salvation. The book of Revelation, with all its symbolic language and apocalyptic imagery, has the power to break into the monotony of our everyday Christian lives. It has the power, I do believe, to snap us out of being lukewarm Western Christians and compel us by grace to run the race really, really well. To live as we've been called to live, a life worthy of calling ourselves Christians. It's unfortunate because the book of Revelation I think I can say is the most misinterpreted, misunderstood, and misapplied book in all of sacred scripture. And that's unfortunate. It has caused some to be inordinately attracted to it. That is their book. They go to it, they look for signs, they read the newspaper, and they try to predict when Christ is coming again. That's not why John wrote it. Others are just afraid of it. And they say it's too confusing. The symbolic language, the apocalyptic literature, I'm confused by it, so I will just keep it at arm's length. This is most unfortunate for several reasons. First and foremost, the book of Revelation is the Word of God, and therefore we as Christians have a duty to know it, to not only know it but understand it, and then, as John says in verse 4, to obey it. Secondly, my beloved, it was written by the Apostle John to real people in space and time, written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. It was discernible then, and therefore it is discernible now. The Apostle John did not send a key, a magical key, or special reading glasses with the book so they could figure out all the the, the magic in it. They understood it then. We should be able to understand it now. But fundamentally, we want to know this book because it is a book of encouragement. Did you know that? John wrote the book to to Christians being persecuted that they might be encouraged and stay the course of faith. It's that simple. Now, I don't know about you, but I need encouragement every single day in continuing my pursuit of Jesus Christ, especially in this fallen world and especially these days and in this place. It is a word of encouragement for every Christian and every church throughout the ages, that we might stay a course. It is a means by which God breaks into our monotony and says, wake up and follow Jesus. I am eager, maybe too eager, maybe you can sense that, (laughs) to spend the next several weeks with you walking through this remarkable New Testament letter. I'm not going to try to provide you with some mystical power to interpret end-time events. That's not my goal. That's not why John wrote the book. I want to help you hear, understand, and do what John says. 
If we can do that over the next several weeks, then I do believe God will be most pleased in the time that we spend. I want to help you be encouraged by it. I want to help you be blessed by it so that you too can not just persevere in the midst of difficult times, but I would argue thrive as Christians, as more than conquerors of those in Christ. So let's, let's do that. Let's begin our journey this morning by seeing from John's opening words that we too, we can be greatly encouraged even when circumstances in our life are hard. We can be greatly encouraged for three very beautiful and very simple reasons. Number one, Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon. Number two, grace and peace are available right now to you in Christ. And number three, God is sovereign always. We can be encouraged because Jesus is coming soon, because grace and peace are available now for the Christian, and because God is sovereign always. The theme of the sermon is this, because God is sovereign, you can be encouraged. Because God is sovereign, you can be encouraged. So point number one, Jesus is coming soon. Look at verse one. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, my beloved, before we begin, whatever else you think the book of Revelation is about, dragons and beasts and antichrist, John makes it clear from his opening words that the book of Revelation is first, foremost, and fundamentally the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is from him and it is about him. His life, His death, His resurrection, and the gospel that comes forth from that. That's a good way to start, is it not? If someone says to you, what's the book of Revelation about? You say, it's about Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And it comes, John tells us, directly from the Father. The Father gives the revelation to Jesus. Did you notice that latter part of verse 1? which God gave him to show his servant the things that must soon take place. In other words, it's coming straight from the top. Anybody who complains about Jesus not having the authority to preach these truths, it's subverted by this because it's the Father giving it to the Son who then gives it to, did you notice, plural servants, that's us. That's the church. That's his people throughout history. He shows to his servants That's all believers, the things that must soon take place. Well, what things are these? What are the things that must soon take place? Throughout this book, we're going to hear about the persecution and suffering of God's people that's soon to take place, as in right now. We're going to hear about this kingdom of heaven that's going to come down to earth. We're going to hear about the judgment of all sin and all evil, the complete restoration of God's people, the making of all things new, and heaven and earth and Christ reigning with his people. All the glorious promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all those promises made to Moses and David and the prophets being fulfilled when? Being fulfilled soon. Soon. Now you hear that, and we hear that term soon, and we make it very relative, and we think, well, John wrote this 2,000 years ago, so whatever his idea of soon was certainly is not mine. In fact, Revelation chapter 1 has bothered Christians for centuries. Some argue that John just got it wrong. He said soon, and he was wrong. It wasn't soon. 
Others actually take Revelation 1.1 and interpret it saying, oh, he meant soon as in before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And they develop an entire eschatology, how, the, how it ends based upon that. I think there's a better way to understand how we understand timing and prophetic utterances from the Old Testament itself. In fact, the Old Testament is going to be our primary guide through the book of Revelation. Fully two-thirds of the verses in the book of Revelation have an Old Testament tie to them. So if you want to interpret Revelation, look to the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah, for example, chapters 40 through 66, God promises to the prophet Isaiah that he's going to have a new exodus and a new creation when the exiles return from Babylon. He said this, Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And yet, my beloved, the exiled Jews who came back from Babylonian captivity, they did not see a new heaven and a new earth in that old Jerusalem. Isaiah didn't get it wrong when he said it was happening soon. He was simply pointing to the imminence of what would soon take place. In other words, he was talking about what was going to be inaugurated rather than what was going to be completed. Jeremiah had a very similar prophecy for the Babylonian captives, for the Jews that were going to come back. Jeremiah 31 said, This, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And this was, again, not fulfilled when the exiles returned in the 5th century under Cyrus, it was inaugurated when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, 600 years later from Jeremiah's writing, and it will be consummated when Jesus returns. In other words, when John says soon, he's able to say that because these are the last days. These are the last days. They were ushered in with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and, and when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. Remember Peter's quote, when he cited Joel in Acts chapter 2, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That means we've been in the last days since Pentecost. Since the day of Pentecost, we have been in the last days. And therefore, my beloved, it's appropriate for every Christian of every single generation to say Jesus is coming soon. That he's coming soon. John then explains that this message of John's of Jesus' imminent return was communicated to him by God through an angel. Look at the latter part of verse 1 again. He, speaking of God the Father, made it, these things, known by sending his angel to his servant John. That is, the apostle John. John the beloved. The disciple that laid his, his head upon Jesus' chest. This is the one we believe, certainly I would argue, is the one writing the book of Revelation. Verse 2. The Apostle John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And so verse 2 is a wonderful, it's the trailer of the book. I know you do that. When you go to watch a movie, you watch the trailer first. This is the trailer of the book. It's not in visual. It is in the written language. John's going to bear witness to the Word of God. That's everything that God and the angel communicates to him. John's going to put that in this book. And the focus is going to be on what? The testimony of Jesus Christ. So the focus of this book, the Word of God, is going to be the faithful life, death, resurrection, ascension, and imminent return of Jesus. That's going to be the plot line throughout the whole book. And the book will include all that John says. And, and John's talking about all the visions, 
all the symbolic imagery that's going to flood our senses. And if we get it right by the power of the Holy Spirit, cause us to no longer slumber. And then John tells us why we need to pay very close attention about what he's going to say. And so here's your, here's your thesis for your response to the book of Revelation, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so this is the first of seven blessings. They're, they're beatitudes in the book of Revelation, how you can be blessed by it. And the, word, the number seven we're going to see throughout the book, it's symbolic. Seven obviously can mean seven, but it's used often in the book to mean fullness or completion. And so there are seven blessings that the book of Revelation is going to give us to be complete and to be full. And here the first of the seven has to do with how we, God's people, receive John's prophecy. How are you going to receive it? How are you receiving it now? We're what, ten minutes in? Are you already done? Are you, are you finished? You're like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Or are you still receiving it properly? Now, John identifies his book as prophecy, and, and it is prophetic in nature. And then he begins the book as an epistle. It's going to be a letter, at least the first few chapters, a letter written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Those, that's the area of modern-day Turkey. But if, if there was a predominant theme, a literary genre that we would say this book is comprised of, it would be apocalyptic literature. Some say that apocalyptic prophecy is probably the best. We're, we're looking for things to come, but it's written in such a way that it's different than standard prose, as we would expect. It's a bit foreign to us, but it was well known to them. In fact, in the Old Testament, we have apocalyptic genre. We have it in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah. If you remember our sermon series years ago on Zechariah, you already have a taste of apocalyptic literature. It can be categorized as, I like the, what, this definition, a supernatural unveiling. Apocalyptic, apocalypse means to unveil or to uncover. A supernatural unveiling of what is about to take place. In the context of Scripture, it's the divine revelation. God usually communicating through an angel his promise that he's going to come down to earth, he's going to break into our reality, he's going to punish all sin and evil, and he's going to establish his kingdom here on earth. That's one of the reasons we're so attracted to it. It's, it's massive, it's cataclysmic, and it's good for the believer. So we're drawn to it, hopefully in a very good way. The characteristic of apocalyptic literature that makes it so challenging is its use of symbolic language. That's why it's so hard. That's why many of you stay away from it. You read it and you're like, ah, and you close the book, I have no idea what that means. I'll pray that God gives me wisdom. Symbolic language is a form of literature where words don't literally mean what they say they mean, but they reveal something else. Hence, symbol. A symbol points to or represents something other than the symbol itself. Now, as Westerners, we are at a significant disadvantage. Easterners read apocalyptic literature much better. We love to take everything literally. If it says seven, it means seven and nothing more. If it says dragon, it must be a dragon. If it's 144,000 people, it must be 144,000 exactly and no more. My beloved, I think one of the reasons that, well, I'll speak for myself as I get older, I, I struggle understanding 
the language of some of my younger friends, including my own son, is because they have a language that's steeped in symbolism. For example, when Joshua says to me, Dad, you're looking drippy, he doesn't mean that I'm looking wet. He means I'm looking fashionable. The first time he said it, I thought, am I sweating? What are you talking about? When he says to me, Dad, that's tea, he doesn't mean tea you drink. He means that's gossip. I don't believe it. It's symbolic language. Fire means cool. King means dude. Cap is a lie. And if you're cracked, you're really good at something. It's symbolic language. My beloved, the book of Revelation is filled with symbolic language. It's filled with it. Words and images used to reveal other meanings. Remember that as we work our way through and you won't stumble so easily as so many Westerners do. That means we must be very humble in our approach toward this book. We must be humble and understand the challenges that come with apocalyptic interpretation. And at the same time, we want to strive to understand this book well because the blessings that John talks about in verse 3, they're not just things you want, they are essential. Look at verse 3 again. John said, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So we want to read it aloud, we want to read it ourselves, and we want to hear and do what it says because blessings are attached. So what are those blessings? Well, he was writing to a persecuted church. They might be encouraged, but it wasn't just to encourage them. He was writing so they'd stay their course. They'd remain faithful to Jesus. They wouldn't falter before the end. So these blessings are not just blessings you want. They are essential for us. And he ends, did you notice how he ended verse 3? For the time is near. What's the time that's near? Christ is coming soon. So in th three verses, twice he says, soon it is near. Christ is coming. And when Christ comes again, my beloved, the entire world as we know it will be turned upside down. And all those who have not put their faith in Jesus will wish they had never been born. Look at verse 7 with me. After a brief doxology glorifying Christ, John says, Behold, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And then John says, Even so, amen. Even though it's going to be catastrophic, amen. John says, Behold, because he wants to draw attention to this singular truth. Behold, human history, my beloved, as we know it, will not last forever. The days as we know it, the monotony that Joshua experienced in his first month as a worker on a construction site, will not last forever. Behold, John says, the Son of Man, that's the King of the universe, it's Jesus Christ. He's coming to earth to establish his kingdom and his reign here over all people, and John says, it's coming, it's happening soon. Soon. In fact, the language from verse 7 is drawn directly from the passage you heard Kirk read in Daniel chapter 7 and Zechariah chapter 12, and it's describing the universal recognition of this event. When Christ comes, all will know, living and dead, 
Look at verse 7 again. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced me. So wait a minute. Those who pierced him, they're already dead. How will they see him? Because they're going to be brought back to life, that they might be judged by him. No one will miss the cataclysmic event of Jesus' return, the return of the murdered king, the son of God who had been rejected by man and pierced because he had been nailed to a Roman cross, the son of God when he came the first time who should have been worshipped and adored as the king of kings and lord of lords that he is, he will return and John tells us all tribes of the earth, all those from every tribe, tongue, and nation who do not and did not put their faith in Jesus to save them will what? Look at the latter part of verse 7. They will wail on account of him. They will wail, they will weep, they will mourn. We're going to hear this again in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. They will call to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, that's Christ. So right out of the gate, we're not even out of the prologue yet. John is establishing a sense of urgency because Jesus is coming and he's coming soon. My beloved, over the next several weeks as we work through this, if there's one thing I'd like for you to keep at the forefront, it would be urgency for you. If this is true, if it's not true, we can all go home and have an early lunch. If it is true that Christ is coming and Christ will judge and he's coming soon, then there's an urgency to our lives. Every living human being is called to be ready to have a right relationship with the living God by grace through faith in Christ. Saved by grace through faith in Christ. Why? So the wailing you hear on that last day will not be your own. You want to know Christ because Christ is coming soon. You want to know God the Father in a saving sense because when he comes there will be wailing and you do not want that wailing to be yours or anyone that you know. We want to hear and obey what we're going to hear over the next several weeks that we might remain steadfast because apart from Knowing Christ, apart from persevering to the end which Christ calls is true, apart from really being saved, I mean truly saved, not just going to church or getting baptized, but knowing that you are in Christ and Christ is in you, and that your life is evidenced by that, my beloved, apart from Jesus, wailing is all that awaits you. Wailing is all that awaits you, judgment and eternal damnation on that day when Christ returns. Now we get to this point in the sermon and you say, well, you know, if Jesus is coming soon and when he comes he's going to judge and they'll be wailing. Even John says, even so, amen. He literally says, yes, amen, let it be. As catastrophic and as tragic as it is, let it be. You say, how how is this encouraging? How am I supposed to be encouraged by this? Don't give up on me yet. Point number two. Grace and peace are available now in the midst of this yes, amen, Christ is coming. Grace and peace are available to you right now. Look at verse 4. John continues, John the apostle, to the seven churches that are in Asia. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler 
of kings on earth. That's quite a greeting. So after John finishes his prologue in verses 1 through 3, he begins a, a formal letter, an epistle to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now Jesus is going to he's going to identify the seven churches specifically. But the fact there are seven churches, remember, seven doesn't necessarily literally mean seven. We're thinking symbolically. So seven may mean, in addition to these seven specific churches, it may mean the fullness or completeness of all the churches, which means throughout human history, which applies to Christ's community church. I think that that's what it means. The seven churches are literal and they are figurative. But what I find so extraordinary about this particular greeting is not only what it reveals is available to us right now in Christ, grace and peace in the midst of suffering or persecution, but the source of that grace and peace. Now, when we use the word grace, grace is, is the unearned favor granted to us freely by God out of his abundance of love. It's what God gives us freely in Christ out of his love for us. And peace is the product of that grace. If you have God's grace, then you have a restored relationship with God in Christ, and therefore you have peace. You're no longer at war with God. You're no longer an enemy of God. You've been reconciled, forgiven. You're now a son or daughter. In other words, right now in Christ, if you're in Christ, you can have peace and grace even though you know Christ is coming soon. But what makes this epistolary greeting, this greeting to this letter, unlike, it's unlike any other in the entire New Testament, is that John, did you notice this? John draws in the entire Trinity in his greeting. So long before Nicaea, long before Chalcedon, John reveals that the grace we enjoy and the peace that we can have comes from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is magnificent, my beloved, and I'm not going to apologize for being excited over this. It's unbelievable how John starts this letter. Look at verse 4 again. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now that's that's a direct reference to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. When God said to Moses, Moses said, who am I going to say sent me? And he says, I am. I am who I am. The ever-present, all-knowing, all-powerful, living God. God the Father. The eternal sovereign. The ruler. Past, present, and future. And God, through this angel, says to John, you can have grace and peace right now from me, the Father. You say, well, that's sufficient. But John doesn't stop there. He says next, the Holy Spirit, grace to you and peace from, look, the seven spirits who are before his throne. You're like, you know what? That number seven keeps coming up, and it's going to. It's symbolic. Now, some argue that the seven spirits do not represent the Holy Spirit, um, even though the word number seven represents fullness or completeness, which we would expect in the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Um, that some argue that it's angels, seven angels, or seven archangels. The problem with that is nowhere in the New Testament are grace and peace are offer, grace and peace offered by an angel or a human being. They always come from God. They always come from God. And this text is clearly a Trinitarian text. Father, Spirit, and Son all discussed together. So I, I do believe the seven spirits that 
John is referring to is the Holy Spirit of God. So grace and peace are available to us from God the Father, from God the Holy Spirit, and lastly from God the Son. Look at verse 5. And grace and peace, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So in parallel fashion, John sets up Jesus and the Father. The Father was spoken of as the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Jesus is given three distinct descriptives here. He is the faithful witness, the living, dying, rising Christ who was in perfect obedience to the Father. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. Now, the firstborn in the Hebrew culture was understood as the one who was designated to rule. And so Jesus Christ is the first to rise from the dead to eternal life and rule over those he will lead into salvation, that train of captives taken out of the darkness and brought into the light. And the third one is he is the ruler of kings on earth. Now, that would have resonated with our brothers and sisters being persecuted in Asia. They'd have heard that and they would have said, oh yes, amen. No king, no government, no president stands over Jesus Christ. He is king over all. So in one fell swoop, before John reveals the things that are yet to come, and some of these things are gonna be really hard for us to hear, before he does that, encouraging his, the church is then and the church today to remain faithful. He magnifies God. He lifts up God. And he tells us to remain faithful, not because our circumstances in life will be easy. For many of us, they have been quite difficult. And for many of you, they will be difficult as you move forward. He tells us to be encouraged and he tells us to stay the course. He says, have the grace of God and be at peace regardless of your circumstances, not because your life will be easy, but because of who God is. You say, that's, that's overly simplistic. It really isn't. John is saying, because of who God is, he is the great I am. He is the perfectly sovereign father. He is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that dwells in you as a comforter and as a teacher and as a guide. And he is the Savior, the faithful witness, the leader of ransomed people, the ruler over all powers, Jesus Christ. You say, well, how does that bring me grace and peace? My beloved, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, if you are in Christ, is on your side. They're on your side. Now, if God is your ally, and God ensures to Make sure you persevere to the end. Who or what can be against you? What can bring anxiety in your life? Whatever troubles you may have, physical, financial, spiritual, emotional, if God is on your side, then your ultimate well-being is secure, is it not? Grace and peace can be yours if you're in Christ because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are there with you. When my son Brandon was on the verge of death a few years ago, some very well-meaning friends, and they did, they intended well, they were ensuring me that Brandon would be fine. They said, oh, he'll be just fine. It brought me no peace, my beloved, to hear those words. When Brandon's surgeon at Stanford, the top colorectal surgeon in the country, said to me, Brandon will be fine, there was peace. That man knew 
what he was going to do. And I went back and I petitioned my Lord for prayer and anxiety. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit brought me perfect peace in that. My beloved, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all on your side, working right now in your life, if you're in Christ, to bring about the salvation of your soul. You are, and you will forever be just fine, regardless of what happens now. That's an absolute, if you are in Christ. And if this is true, my beloved, then the certainty of grace and peace can be yours regardless of what's happening in your life right now. Do you realize that? If Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are on your side and ensure your salvation, then grace and peace can be yours. This brief description of John on Jesus as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth on earth, It leads him right into a doxology. He almost falls into it. It's like he can't talk about Jesus without praising Jesus. Did you notice that? And he talks about Jesus and his saving work. Look at the latter part of verse 5. John says, to him who loves us, he's talking about Christ now, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him John says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And then he says, amen. I I, I bet when he read this, when this was being read for the first time to those seven churches, I bet you the entire church said amen. But they all just called out. He goes to the love of God in Christ for us. This is where his heart is drawn, a love so powerful my beloved, a love so powerful that God had for sinful man that it led to the shedding of Jesus' blood. His innocent blood shed on the cross so that sinners like us could what? We had a chance to sing it earlier. So we could be set free. Free from the power of sin. Free from the power of death. Free to what? Free to be the people God created us to be. Servants who love and minister New creatures who worship God and serve his fellow man. Grace and peace can be had and enjoyed now because the lover of your soul paid the ultimate price to give it to you freely. It's through his death and resurrection that Jesus not only guarantees our freedom from that judgment day where there will be wailing but we're told here to make us, his church, into a kingdom of priests. Now, I know the way it reads in the ESV, it sounds like they're two separate things, but the Greek actually tells us it's a kingdom of priests that we're made into. So not only are we set free, but we're exalted by God into this glorious people, a kingdom of priests. Well, that's weird. Why are we called, why are we called priests? Because you now have been given the commission to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and mediate it to the lost in your life, that they too might know this Jesus before he comes, before it is too late. You see, Adam and Eve had been placed in the Garden of Eden to rule over the world. They were God's vice regents. They were to mediate God's grace and peace to all the nations for the glory of God. But we know what happened in Genesis chapter 3. They failed at their task. Instead of mediating grace and peace to the nations, they brought sin, destruction, and death to mankind. So the nation of Israel 
was summoned by God to be a nation of priests, to do what Adam and Eve failed to do. But just like Adam and Eve, Israel continued in rebellion, and they failed to bring the universal blessing of peace and grace to the nations. It wasn't, my beloved, until Jesus Christ came the first time the better Adam, the true Israel, and fulfilled the law on our behalf, living a perfect life and dying a sinner's death, that peace and grace came to us by the true priest, the high priest. And then he calls us, he gives us grace and peace, and he calls us to give it to others as well as a kingdom of priests. My beloved, we can be encouraged this very morning, I'll make it personal, you, you can be encouraged regardless of what's happening in your life right now. And, and I don't know what that is, but I, I know we have a large enough group here that some of you are going through a really difficult time right now. It may be marital, it may be physical, it may be financial, it may be the loss of a loved one. You can be encouraged right now regardless of your circumstances because in Christ, we have been granted the favor of God the Father. We have a high priest. We have a high priest who intercedes on our behalf. And he grants us grace and peace so that we can become children of God. Sons and daughters in the Father's kingdom. Priests equipped to mediate the power of the gospel to the lost. This is the grace you have right now if you're in Christ. This is the peace that's available to you right now if you are in Christ. My beloved, if you are in Christ, you are so cherished, you are so nourished by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that if you don't have peace right now in Christ, that's not on God, that's on you. It's there for you. You can be encouraged, my beloved, because truly and sincerely and, in, and eternally, if God is on your side, what can man do to you? What can governments do to you? What can kings do to you? Absolutely nothing. You say, well, they can put me in jail. They could take my life. They could bring suffering into me. Yes, of course. They may even take your life. But what does that mean for you? That means you get to be with God. Remember what Paul said? To live is for Christ. To die is, we don't believe this, to die is gain. Oh, my beloved, it's such a gain for you if you're in Christ to leave this place. Not early, but when he calls you, Romans chapter 8, Paul makes it so plain, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword and then Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's Christ. And then Paul says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, amen, amen. Nothing if you're in Christ will separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. So we can, my beloved, even this day, be encouraged in the midst of trials because Jesus is coming soon. 
Grace and peace are available to you. Now can I give you one more? I'll be short, I promise. <laughs> you say, no, we don't believe you. <laughs> we, don't, we don't trust you. <laughs> you shouldn't. If I said be short, you shouldn't. <laughs> you know, it's hard. It's hard. So you know on Friday nights and Saturday nights, I go through, I cut this thing down probably to about a half. A half. If you ever want me to preach two hours, three hours, it's all there. It's there. I just have to, whoosh. yeah, okay. Another time, another place, another culture, maybe. Point number three, we can be encouraged because God is sovereign always. Now, this is such a basic tenet of our faith, my beloved. It's so basic, and yet, if you get it, it's life transforming. So we don't know the exact date of when John wrote the book of Revelation, even though many theologians base their entire understanding of the book on it being before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD or after. We don't know because it doesn't tell us, so we have to... We have to make intelligent guesses. I believe the contextual setting for this book and its natural reading matches the reign of Emperor Domitian. You say, well, well, who was that? Domitian ruled over Rome and the Roman Empire from 81 to 96 AD. And for 15 years, he reigned as one of the most ruthless and merciless dictators Rome had ever known, persecuting the Christian church throughout the entire empire. And this persecution stemmed largely from Domitian's reinstitution of what was called emperor worship. So since the days of Augustus, usually emperors, after they died, were deified. They were made into pagan gods. And after their death, there would be statues and there would be temples. And and then people would go and they would worship their former emperors as though they were gods. It was called the emperor cult. But Domitian wanted... He he didn't want to wait until he died. He wanted to be worshipped as a God in this life. And so he declared himself Lord and God, taking the language straight from Christian teaching. And to promulgate his worship, Domitian, he had statues of himself and temples for himself built throughout the empire. And then he required governors and officials to enforce worship. Worship of him throughout all the Roman lands. To refuse to participate in the emperor cult and emperor worship was seen as political defiance against Rome and perishable by death. You can see the real problem it posed for Christians throughout the empire whose allegiance was to Christ alone. Domitian actually passed a law that said this, quote, no Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. So renounce Christ, worship Domitian, or suffer the consequences, usually exile, torture, and or death. And it was during this time that I I really believe that, that John wrote his book. I believe that God brought this revelation to John at this time. Our early church father, Arrhenius, he said he was a prominent leader. So right around 100 A.D., 90 years or so after I believe this book was written, this is what he writes. Arrhenius writes, The vision in Revelation was announced by God, by him, John, who beheld the apocalyptic vision. For this vision was seen not long ago, but almost in our day towards the end of Domitian's reign. So we have some external testimony to the timing of the book. So John's 
on the island of Patmos, probably exiled by Domitian himself. Christians are suffering under the persecution and rule of Domitian. Spiritual and economic state of the churches in Asia Minor rendered this book probably early to mid-90s A.D. You say, well, why are you telling me this? There, there are reasons, and we'll look at it as we go further. But we're talking 60 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. 60 years. Right, so his delay was causing many to stumble. Some, like the Thessalonians, believed that he'd already come and they missed it. Well, that, that would be bad. Others believed that he wasn't coming back at all, that the teaching was false. Still others, they, they believed he was going to return, but they were being pressed on all sides. Persecution from the state, persecution from the family, persecution economically to cave in. And so they were asking themselves, what? Is it worth it? Is it worth it for me to go 10, 20, 30, 40 more years suffering for Christ when he hasn't come back and, and probably won't? It was a hard time for the state of the church. So before concluding his prologue and bringing his letter to the seven churches, because what he's going to say is going to be really hard for them to hear. For those who were suffering, he says it's going to get worse. The persecution is going to increase, not decrease. So before he does this, before he brings this very difficult revelation for them to receive, he finishes his prologue in verse 8 with a definitive, all-encouraging truth claim. Let me read it to you again. Look with your own eyes, verse 8. This is God speaking now. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. And so before John launches into the major pieces of his letter, he reestablishes for his audience the absolute sovereignty of the living God. The Alpha and the Omega. You say, what are those? those are, that's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. It was a title. The beginning and the end and everything in between, John is saying, belongs to God. God is sovereign, not Domitian. Not any government or any ruler over human history. God is sovereign. He rules over history from beginning to end and everything that takes place in between. He's sovereign over the details, my beloved. Nothing escapes God's sovereignty. Nothing is outside of his sovereignty. And that means his purposes and his plans, listen, are always accomplished. Whatever God sets forth, whatever God purposes to come to pass, whatever his plan is for his people, for his church, for you, he's sovereign. No one can thwart it. Not even you can thwart the will of God for your own life. You know that. Not even you. No nation, no ruler, no time has ever taken God by surprise. Never in human history did God go, wow, I didn't see that coming. No circumstances have ever been out of his control. And that means for John's listeners in the first century, when they're being persecuted, it was so decreed by God. When they were suffering for the sake of the gospel, it was under God's control. He had not abandoned them. No one had usurped his power. His rule is absolute, and everything that happens, happens according to his sovereign decree, period. So, well, why are you saying this to me? Why are you telling us this? Because when we're suffering, 
and we want to be encouraged. We think that somehow God's not with us anymore. God's not in control. Life is crazy right now. God can't be in control of this. And yet he is. He's the Alpha and the Omega. John reiterates verse 4, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And then he punctuates it with the Almighty. And that literally means the all-prevailing one. The Old Testament, you know, the, the title for God, El Shaddai. We used to sing that a lot. El Shaddai, El Shaddai. The almighty, all-powerful God, because no one's more powerful than he, and he always fulfills his purposes. That means his plan for human history, his plan for mankind, his plan for the church, and his plan for you in Christ, even when it looks like it's totally out of control, is in perfect control. From our vantage point, we're looking out and we're looking up and we're thinking, my life, the church, the country, the world seems unhinged, out of control. From God's vantage point, he's saying it's under perfect control. Everything happening exactly as God has so decreed. And so in light of what John is about to reveal, specifically the judgment that is coming upon the church throughout this church age and with the return of Christ, Listen, I'm going to close. He needs his readers then. He needs his readers now, you, not to get sideways on this. You can't get squirrely on me when we get through this book because you're going to hear about the judgments and it may cause you to be discouraged. You may say, I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to be anywhere near this when it happens. If this is true, listen, the first time I read the book of Revelation, I was not saved. I was a 20-year-old at UC Davis taking a New Testament class at a secular school, which is kind of ironic. I read the book of Revelation. It was probably midnight. I closed that book. I set it down. And I thought, if that's true, I'm doomed. I'm doomed. I didn't believe it. But the Spirit was already working at that point in time. My beloved, when you hear the judgment that is to come, do not be overwhelmed. It is not meant to discourage, but to encourage you. For the true believer... Because God is sovereign, there is great hope. Because God has guaranteed your salvation, there should be great peace. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are on your side. And because God's on your side, you can rest assured that whatever you suffer in this life as a Christian, and however long you suffer as a Christian, broken relationships, financial hardship, sickness, death, sacrifices for the kingdom, you can know that the outcome is fixed by God and it will be ultimately good for you. It's fixed by God. And it's good for you if you're in Christ. My prayer is that the sovereignty will also stir up in us a sense of urgency. Because if God is sovereign and he said something will come to pass, then it will come to pass. So as we go through this this book and we see the judgment coming, and we see Christ coming soon. Listen, you find your walk complacent as we work through this book the next several weeks. No real change in the way you live. No change in how you worship. No mortification of sin. No increase in holiness. No greater desire to use your gifts and talents for the kingdom. Even though you hear John say again and again, Jesus is coming soon, the time is near, If that's not happening to you, my beloved, and you find yourself, as we will see in the next few weeks, like the church in Laodicea, lukewarm, 
Christ may very well just spit you out of his mouth. Let's pray right now that God would bless us as a church by arousing us from our slumber with this remarkable book. I want to encourage you to work hard to hear, understand, and obey everything that God has revealed through John that you might be blessed, be encouraged, and stay the course so that you will receive the reward of eternal glory. Amen? Did I lose anybody? You're all with me? Well, you're still here. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this incredible book. Thank you for making yourself known to the Apostle John so long ago. Thank you, Father, for these timeless teachings, these words of encouragement. Father, I ask quite simply that you would, by your Holy Spirit, wake us up. Many of us are asleep. Many of us are, are hurting. Some of us being persecuted even today for our faith. I pray, Father, that you would use this time in these next several weeks to bring yourself glory by encouraging your people. Let us be a people rightly encouraged, rightly working, rightly serving for your glory.